Hey everybody, welcome back to the Overrun Podcast. My name is Ed Bowder, and today we have a big show. Uh, I did an interview with Dr. Peter Antivy from Florida. Talked about pediatric care and how we can improve pediatric care. I will say at the top of the show, there's a little bit of audio pops uh, throughout the conversation, but not enough to stop the show. So without any further ado, here's Dr. Peter Antivy. All right, on the line with me, I have Dr. Peter Antivy. He is a pediatric emergency physician at Joe DiMaggio's Children's Hospital in Hollywood, Florida. He's the EMS medical director for Davy Fire Rescue, Coral Springs, Parkland Fire Rescue, and Palm Beach County Fire Rescue. He's also the president of the Greater Broward EMS Medical Directors Association, the NAEMT Medical Director of the Year in 2018, and one of the top 10, top 10 innovators uh, from GEMS in 2015. So, Dr. Antivy, thank you so much for, uh, for talking to me today. Thanks, Ed. Happy to be here. So the reason we wanted to talk to you is we, uh, as a as a show, we kind of feel like pediatrics and EMS and pre-hospital medicine kind of gets left to the side a little bit. So I wanted to talk to you about some big misconceptions in pediatric care in the field uh, as it pertains to EMS and, uh, and paramedics. So the first one is, how do you feel about the statement that kids are just small adults? So... Honestly, many years ago when I was going through residency in L.A. Children's Hospital and then fellowship in Pittsburgh, I was told that mantra. I believed that mantra. I told everyone I felt the same way. And then um, I became an attending down here in Joe DiMaggio, as you mentioned, and then I became an EMS medical director 10 years ago. And I realized that by pushing that line and by, by pushing that feeling that you know kids are not just small adults, that you, you end up creating this big gap between the care that those two populations receive such that my medics would have feel, felt very comfortable with an adult patient in cardiac arrest and you give them the same exact case but you make it a two-year-old and suddenly their heart rate goes up they start sweating they don't feel comfortable anymore and when i show them the algorithm is exactly the same they automatically say to me well kids are different and that's what i've been told and so I strongly now don't believe that children should be thought of as any different than adults because in what we do as EMS professionals, as emergency medicine professionals, we have to treat the people the same so that you're treating them with the same high quality, the same level of care. If you're staying on scene for an adult, well, you better damn well stay on scene for the child because the odds of survival are much better if you do the right things on scene. So. Um, I've kind of taken a 180 in all this, and I think a lot of people now are following along, which is really good to see. So do you think that our, I guess, our attitude toward treating kids in general, do you think that's more of a societal thing or more of a clinical problem? I think it was created back in the day. You know, we had a family physician. Then it turned out we had an internist and a pediatric. Now we have pediatric ER, pediatric optho, pediatric this, pediatric that. And if you have a child who's in the hospital who needs a subspecialist, Yes, you want them to be with the pediatric retina specialist who, who only deals with that. But on the spectrum, which is us in EMS, we, we take care of everything. And so I do think that that um, specialization that has happened on the hospital side of things um, really doesn't apply to what we do. And so I really think that we have to think of it differently and we have to kind of lump them all into the same and we have to train the same. Our protocols have to be one unified protocol. So if you look at my protocols now, for seizure, for SVT, for cardiac arrest, adult and peds are on the same exact page with some nuances, of course. Right, of course. Now, the, the reason that I think that's an important misconception to clear up is it's very easy to go into Google and search, you know, 
um, pediatric patients versus adult patients. Um, in 2018, the American Society of Microbiology put out a thing about herpes simplex virus and how devastating it is for children as compared to adults. Um, 2007, uh, Gillis and Laughlin put out the metaphors um, of treating pediatric patients and how they're not just small adults. So it is kind of a, uh, a I don't want to say controversial, but kind of a, a cutting edge theory that kids should be treated similarly to adults. Have you gotten a lot of pushback in the industry from that? Or is that just something that you decided, I'm just going to do this and we're moving along with that? You know what? Um, I have not gotten any pushback when people actually hear the story and they understand the reasoning. And then most recently, February 2019, in one of the uh, most highly acclaimed journals, peer-reviewed journals out there, the journal called Resuscitation, uh, was published a paper on pediatric cardiac arrest uh, by Polk County EMS, where they implemented this quote-unquote concept where they stay on scene, they treat kids like adults, and their neuro-intact survival skyrocketed in 2014, in 2015. It kept going up in 16 and 17, and now in 18, they're at about 35% neuro-intact survival, all comers. And so now we have the data, um, and also you have to understand that uh, we have over 1,000 agencies across the country uh, 50,000 people are using the application. And so we, we now have reams of data. We have um, so many uh, stories that uh, that come into us by phone, by email, by text. And so we, we now know that this is not just um, a tagline, but this is really the truth that children, and, and, and you have to remember, as a medical director, I work with over 2,000 paramedics myself. Right. And I can tell you that um, by, by changing the thought process and allowing them to go and look at mom and dad in the eye rather than looking away, staying on scene, doing the right things, the outcomes are better. And there's, you cannot argue with those outcomes. Right. So if you're, if you're talking to someone who's a director, who's a, in a, a position of management in EMS, and they're looking to change their, their pediatric protocols, what, what changes would you suggest they implement right away as far as training is concerned um, and as far as just handling pediatric patients in general? That's a great question. I mean, I think, I think there are some, there's some easy ones to the lowest hanging fruit is that you should never, ever be allowed to do a math calculation on scene in a back of an ambulance in front of mom and dad, because in EMS, we're different than the hospital because a, we know our protocol. So we know the drug we carry. We know the concentration. We know the dose that's listed in the protocol. We know the route. And so why are we, it's the equivalent, Ed, if I told you, um, come over to my house for dinner and bring all the ingredients. And when you get here, we're going to have to make the entire dinner from scratch. Or, Ed, show up at my house for dinner and you get there and everything is done. You do not want an EMS professional showing up on scene when they know the kid's two years old and they see the kid is seizing for them to have to take a length-based tape, which, which I do agree that a length-based tape is required. It's just not the primary thing. Right. They shouldn't have to measure the kid, look at the tape, look at the dose that may not uh, correlate with their protocol, do a math calculation, then take the drug and all this. And mom and dad are looking at you. It's taking three minutes, four minutes. Most people out there in, in EMS will, instead of doing that, they'll take the kid, they'll go to the back of the ambulance, they'll close the door, and then they'll just use diesel fuel to get to the hospital. And there was a study in um, out of Houston a couple of years ago that showed that there were uh, about 250 children in the back of, a, of an ambulance in Houston actively seizing. 
And when they actually looked at the numbers, um, about only 60% of them got treated. That means 40% of children actively seizing even got a dose of medication. And then when they looked at the dose that they received in both groups, the, 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 the actual group that got the pediatric training and the ones that didn't, there was a 50% error rate. So that's an error of omission, right? 40% not getting the drug. And then there's an error of commission. The ones who said, I'm going to give it, half the time got it wrong. And so that it, it shows us that what have we have been doing hasn't worked. So that would be the number one thing. No more math allowed in the back of an ambulance or by EMS in general. I'm sure there's plenty of people who'd be thrilled to hear that. <laughs> Well, listen, listen, it's funny. I, uh, I'm the medical director of two paramedic schools. So, and we had a graduation a couple nights ago on Friday night for one of them. Right. And, you know, they, they pound, my instructors pound into them all these formulas and the, the whole thing. And I'm sitting back there because it's a Department of Transportation state uh, curriculum we have to follow. And I just look at these kids and their, their eyes are. But uh, there's not one agency, uh, you know, in, in, in most of Florida, who ever has to do a calculation ever again, and they shouldn't have to do that. Which is which is great. I mean, I'm I'm, I think 13 years or 12 years out of medic school now, and I still have nightmares about the dopamine and lidocaine clocks. That is um, right. That's right. <laughs> exactly. Can you believe that even still happens today? Uh, so yeah. So in other words, I guarantee you, for all the entire audience listening today, if I just gave you a couple of things and I said, uh, patients in septic shock needs um, a norepi drip. What's the dose for, for a two-year-old, for a seven-year-old? Uh, a kid is in anaphylaxis and he's seven years old. He needs epi, benadryl, cyamedrol, and albuterol, a normal saline bolus. Oh, and then he needs some push press or epi and then start an epi drip. Are you kidding me? How, <laughs> how in the world? Figure it out. Go. <laughs> find me one person who could stand face-to-face with me and I can ask a question and they can get the answer correct. And that doesn't happen. It's never happened. So one of the things we've talked about previously on the show is uh, we're all fans of uh, Atul Gawande's book, The Checklist Manifesto. Yeah. And I'm wondering if that's a that's a protocol you've implemented as well, having checklists just standardize uh, dosaging um, for the pediatric patients. Is that is that a, an avenue you've pursued at this point? Yeah, so it's it's funny you say that. I actually, when that book first came out, I made a whole PowerPoint presentation. I, <laughs> I, I made a presentation at my hospital, and I, I'm a huge fan of just Atul in general. Um, I... You know, so so with, with our, with what we've created uh, over the last ten years, is a customized dosing tool, if you will. It's it's now it's in an application and that integrates into ESO or Image Trend, and now we're doing Epic and Cerner on the hospital side, where you could be at the at, you know in route to the child who's seizing, who's two years old. You click the two year old. You look at your midazolam dose. It tells you the exact dose as a volume, and so when you get there. You, you already know what you're going to do. You can look at mom and dad in the eyes. And then with one tap, you press a button. And then that information then goes seamlessly into your, uh, you know, either ESO or image trend electronic medical record without you having to, quote, unquote, falsify the – and when I say I'm, – I'm using the term kind of as a joke. But right. my meds give a drug at 12 o'clock uh, on the scene. Let's say they give one ml. And then they, two hours later, are back at the station filling out the chart. And they say, hey, how much should we give? Uh, I don't know. How much did the kid weigh? Eh, 20 kilos. And we gave uh, 0.1 per kilo. Yes, we gave two milligrams. And they document two milligrams, even though what they would have given may not have been that dose. So as a medical director, I was finding that the dose in the chart was correct. But my nurses were calling me from the ER saying they overdosed that child. 
and I didn't realize what was happening until I understood how things get documented versus how they are given. And so the whole, I mean, now that I live inside of this and I live in and I breathe it every single day, I now understand exactly what to do. And that's the tool that now we use and agencies around the country are using to help them. Well, and of course, in any tool that we have that's going to make things easier for EMTs and medics, we're going to jump right on to use it as soon as possible. You know, if we have something that's going to make our calculations easier or, you know, our charting easier, that's going to be the first thing that we'll jump to use. Yep. Yep. And, and, and honestly, you know, uh, everywhere I go around the country, the, the first thing people stop and tell me is, thankfully, I never have to do another calculation again. But more, <laughs> more, more importantly, they say, you know what, and this is where our course comes in, where we have a class that teaches this. But more importantly is when someone says to me, when I was going to that call, I felt like I was going to an adult. When I got off the truck, I can look at mom and dad in the eyes. I can stay on scene for 20 minutes to do a, a, to perform cardiac arrest uh, with high performance uh, mentality. And then the child came back to life. And there's, there's so many of those cases that kind of ride on the line between success and failure. And you're, you're talking minutes and seconds of do I stay or do I go? And so we are really kind of helping people stay and do the right thing. And the outcomes are not proving uh, that that has worked. So and along those lines, do you think that as EMS professionals, do you think that we need specialized pediatric training or do you think that the entry-level PALS class, uh, you know, every two-year research is sufficient? You know, uh, uh, listen, PALS, PALS ha has a use and the use for PALS, in my opinion, is to um, review the science and the, and, and the latest data. But unfortunately... PALS, there, there's a very large gap between what you learn in PALS and what you do on the street. Okay, and I think all of us who are who work in the street understand exactly what that means. That knowing that what to do in a case where there's a cardiac arrest is one thing, but actually performing that cardiac arrest is a whole nother thing. So I view PALS as the science of things. What we do is we operationalize the science. And so we get on the floor. We actually do pick crew CPR, high-performance CPR. Uh, we actually have people draw up the fentanyl. We actually have people um, administer the adenosine. We watch where they put the flush. We, we talk about every single nuance of how to get it done. So the protocols are the same, like I mentioned. But then we talk about all the pediatric nuances in the larger head and the airways more anterior and how do you put in a pediatric eye gel or a king tube versus an adult size one. And so... Um, I would say that we, we try to live under the umbrella of advanced life support for all, and then we kind of focus on the little nuances in the pediatric side versus the adult side. And so we've had great success by doing that, and people have come out of this class saying, okay, now I get it, and I'm ready to go back to work. So you, you emphasize working on the scene, which I, I think is very important. Um, and one of the, the videos on your site um, has a great tip about keeping the epinephrine doses in the epinephrine box um, that I ne had never occurred to me before. And I was actually like, that's a, that's a really good idea. I'm mad that I missed it. Um, what advice would you give to practitioners that are out there that have never considered working a pediatric arrest on the scene as far as maintaining a calm scene in general? Because I think we're, we're fairly okay with it as, with adult patients. Um, to an extent, you know, adult cardiac arrest kind of follows the natural order of things and pediatric cardiac arrest certainly doesn't. So what would you suggest to field providers as far as maintaining a calm scene as we're trying to implement these new protocols and do the cardiac arrest there as opposed to on the way to the hospital? That, that That's a great question. There, there's 
there's two things I would address. Number one, there's probably people listening who are saying, I'm never staying on scene. I'm gonna, I don't care what this guy says, I'm gonna go. So here's what I would say to those people. Every child that you're actually doing CPR in the back of your ambulance and you didn't spend any time on scene, follow up to see what the outcome was for that child. If that child is playing soccer today, I will take you to dinner. I will, I will take you to dinner. I will, I mean, you, you can, you know, you can fly in, I'll take you to dinner and I, I'm more than happy to do that. Now, then, then there are the people who say, I really want to stay on scene, but I don't know how to stay on scene. And so that's, I think what you're trying to get at in that, in that question. And what we've learned is something very basic is that if you can review what you're going to do prior to arrival on scene, so the pre-arrival preparation is probably the single most important thing to do. So it's so simple, right? It seems like such an easy concept, but let's say, Ed, I told you we're going to a five-year-old in cardiac arrest and the epi dose, one in 10,000 is going to be two mLs, okay? Right. And you were going to be the one who is going to be administering that medication. Then I said to uh, my other partner here, you're going to be on air where you're going to give two big breaths and you're going to put in a size, an, an eye gel size 2.5, right? All of a sudden, we have person number one is doing chest compressions. Person number two is giving two big breaths, putting in a 2.5 eye gel. Person number three is going to drill the IO, whether it be the proximal tibia or the distal femur, and you're going to give two mLs of epi. So when we get there, do the three of us have to talk to each other at all? No. Well, well no, it's all set up. Well, and I think that kind of adds to cognitive offloading as well. There's, exactly. less, there's less thought that you have to do on scene. It, it, it all relates to cognitive offloading. And so, and so then the next piece, once you're offloaded, now all of a sudden the reason people get so panicked on scene is because there's this other person there called mom or dad. And mom and dad um, have now lost full control of what's going on. And this is their loved one, their child that they, mom birthed is sitting here. And what mom and dad need is to see that you are the right person for the job. And there's only one way to accomplish that. Is when you open the when you open the, the back door of your ambulance, you have to lock eyes with that mom or dad. You have to walk right up to them. Now, obviously, if it's a cardiac arrest, we're going to kind of be descending on the child. But someone's got to go up if you have the right the right number of personnel and say, "Listen, my my team here is now working on your child. We're going to try and get the heart rate back here on the scene. I know this is super stressful. Side me here." a couple of minutes while we do a couple of things and then we're going to move off the scene. Is that okay? Right now, notice how I ended that with, is that okay? And I did that on purpose because mom has no control, has lost control. Um, not that if she says no, I'm going to say, okay, well, in that case, we're, we're just right. going to leave. <laughs> just pack up and walk away. <laughs> right, right. But but what that tells a mom is, wow, this person spoke to me. They looked me in the eyes. They told me exactly what they're going to do. I can see that they've done this a million times before. And you know what? They told me what they're going to do. They said they're going to do exactly what the hospital would do, and all they need is a couple of minutes. So you know what? Yes, go ahead. And then instead of saying, you move away, you go, you know, someone take this mom out of here, which is another wrong thing people do. Right. So so all so with a couple of pointers, and you teach people a couple of things along with the cognitive offloading, you suddenly have taken the scene, and you've turned it completely around, in, and now you control the scene because you're controlling your own emotions and you, your, your team knows exactly what they're going to do. It's very and, simple. And it, I think all that's really important. Do you find there's any value to, I guess, obtaining the child's name and using the, the kid's name in the conversation? Or are you fine with just saying, you know, we're working on your child right now? So, so early on, it's probably not realistic, but 
here here's where and th this is kind of what what I talk about um, when I speak nationally. The whole point of my of my talk nowadays is the concept of closure, and closure means a few things in my opinion. Closure for for us who work in EMS is we have to be able to at the end of this call go to the mother or father in the emergency department at the very end, look them in the eyes and said, "Listen, we." I know this has been very difficult. Let me kind of explain to you what happened. We got to your house at 12 o'clock. We did X, Y, and Z. We, we gave medications to get your heart, your child's heart back to life. We then, you know, established the airway so we can breathe for him, et cetera. And then we transport to the hospital and the, and the doctors here and the nurses are doing everything that they can to help your child. You know, I'm really so sorry for what happened today and I really hope that he has a good outcome and you hold their hand, you give him a hug. That what I just described to you right now almost never happens in EMS, especially with a critically ill child. Um, and and that that is where at the very end, if you had the child's name, you should you should use it there. Um, and it turns out because I've spoken to many parents after the fact, and I said, hey, what do you remember about that entire interaction? And whenever there was someone who spoke to them at the very end and looked them in the eyes and held their hand or did something like that, it takes 30 seconds. They say, I remember that person came up to me, looked me in the eyes, and they told me what was going on. And I, I said, and, and they'll say something like, no one's ever done that to me, and no one in the hospital did that for me, and I greatly appreciated that. And if, if they did lose that child in, in a week, in a month, in a year from now, it turns out that they remember because it was it, 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 it meant so much to them, that's what they remember. So we encourage people to get the closure for themselves on the EMS side. And then you help the parent get the closure by talking to them, telling them what you did, using the child's name. Um, getting yourself the closure is step one. Helping others get the closure is really where it's at, in my opinion. And I think that's really the what I see as my mission in life. You know, yeah, the app is great and the dosing is great to have. But at the end of the day, I want people to be whole and go to bed at night saying, you know what, self, you did a great today rather than you could have done better. Right. And that's that's a really important thing. I think the the way that we handle the family, because especially with with pediatric patients, the family are also your patients to an extent as well. Um, Absolutely. And I think it's very important that we that we deal with that. As long as we're talking about the parents of the patients, do you find that? Well, I should say anecdotally, I think that we tend to get on scene and, you know, I'm, I'm here. I know what's going on. I know how to treat this patient. And I, I feel like sometimes EMS people tend to not take the parents account of what happened. Um, I don't want to say too seriously, but maybe as seriously as they should. So talk to me about how you view the parents role as historians and as part of the healthcare team uh, pre-hospitally. This is a great question. No one's ever asked me this question before. And, and I think that the, the parent is probably the most valuable person on the team. And I think coming in and disregarding them is, is a big issue. Here's what I do at my agencies. And I kind of hit this really hard is what when th there are two types of calls that kind of um, are, are exact, um, are, are great examples of, of, of this type of right? spell, they turn limp in the parent's hands. Let's say it was something simple like reflux. The mom is panicked on the phone, 911, my child is blue. By the time we get there in six to eight minutes, the kid looks like the Gerber baby pink. 
And then we all automatically have that body language of really lady, this is what you're calling me for. <laughs> so, right. So I, I, I have all my medics practice with me when I'm in the room with them. And at some point on the, on the arrival there, you have to say something like, I'm glad you called. And here's why you have to say that. Many people, when they dial the three numbers, 911, feel guilty that they did it. What they're looking for on, from, from you, the EMS professional, right when you walk up, is some, something to the effect of vindication. I was right. I knew I should have called you. Because once you remove that guilt that you called 911 lady, you know, and, and you remove that from them, and you say, you know, I'm so glad you called. Now the parent is going to tell you everything because now they say, this is someone who's going to work with me and is going to believe everything I say. If a parent tells you my child turned blue, they turned blue. Right. I was for of course I did. Right. <laughs> but, but listen, I've been doing this for 20 years. I made that mistake you know, as a, as a younger pediatric ER doctor because the kid looks so well in front of me. But when a parent says my kid turned blue, they turned blue. The second type of call is croup, where people screw up all the time because the kid with croup suddenly, from a, from a dead sleep, um, starts to have a severe cough, barks like a dog, and because their CO2 is in the, let's say, in the 60s, because they've been retaining, 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 when they get up, they look like they're from outer space. They wake up, they breathe a little faster, they get their end title down to the you know, 35, 45 range. By the time we get there, the kid looks perfect again, and the mother is panicked. It's another one where we typically say, lady, are you really, I mean, there's something wrong with you. So it's a classic mistake to disregard the family. And so the two things, number one, I already told you, which is I'm glad you called. And then if you're going to do anything, start an IV, give a dose of albuterol, I'm going to transfer you to the hospital. You always end that with, is that okay? Because that now gives the mother the uh, collaboration with you. Um, and then... The last thing I would say in the back of the uh, in the back of the ambulance on the way to the hospital is, hey, you know what? There's nothing you could have done to avoid this because that's the other guilt that parents feel is, I did something to cause that croup. I did something to cause that asthma attack. No, you didn't. Um, and so, th those kind of three items are are very critical in having a great call versus having a call where you're kind of banging against the parent. That's that's my advice. Right. And so the reason that I, I, I give that line of questioning is I, I had the misfortune of being sick when I was a child and my, uh, my parents were probably the best historians around. And I think especially for chronic illnesses, um, yes. it's something that I, I don't want to say that we ignore, but I think we get so accustomed to, you know, getting bad or incomplete histories from, you know, extended care facilities or, or anywhere else that we kind of hear a story and we're like, okay, yeah, no, I got it. Um, and I've always, right. I've always found it's kind of important to, you talk to the parents, like, okay, well, is like if someone, if a child has asthma, like, is this a normal asthma attack for them or does it seem different this time? Because they're the one, they're the ones who will actually be able to give you that, give you that answer. You know what? It, it, it's true that in pediatrics, speaking to the family and making the assessment, um, it's mostly by history. So I used to have a professor in medical school at University of Miami who basically would sit us in a room and he said, all I want is the history. I don't even want the physical exam, and I'll give you the diagnosis. And he was never wrong if you gave him the right history. And that, that just proves that a proper assessment, which comes from the family, is probably the most important thing you can do in pediatrics. Right, exactly. So for the next thing, I do want to shift gears a little bit. Um, we have a, a significant audience of, of BLS providers um, that listen to the show. And we know that childbirth 
is considered a, a BLS emergency generally. Um, but there are instances where BLS providers will call medics in to assess the child or the mother. And I'm wondering what your feelings are as to treating newborn children in the field or childbirth in general as it pertains to a BLS versus ALS emergency. Um, that's a great question. You know, uh, let me just kind of give you a little bit of background about where I work so you understand why, why this is you know, not so much an issue for me because in Florida, in all my agencies, we're all dual trained uh, paramedic firefighters. So we have very few, you know, kind of BLS only providers. That being said, I think that, um, you know, if you're ever in, if for those people listening, if you've ever been at, at an imminent delivery, you know that it's stressful. Um, and I think that, you know, obviously it's a, it's a very important skill to know how to, um, how to accomplish. And so I would say a majority of these types of events, given that it's not, you know, a breach, a footling, uh, that type of thing, um, th there are some very basic maneuvers that are, are taught, you know, not just in paramedic school, but they're taught also in, uh, you know, as part of continuing education. You know, I do think that the basics of childbirth need to be something that uh, every BLS provider needs to know because you're going to be in that situation where if the birth is imminent, you can't wait. Uh, you have to be able to know how to uh, check for a nuchal cord and pull that cord over. You have to know how to do the basics if you do see a breach, uh, that type of thing. So I think that there are some basics that um, that that every person should know. Uh, obviously, very few of, the, of these kids are going to require uh, medications or, or, or such. Uh, oftentimes, um, a big misconception is that the, the umbilical cord has to be cut which is uh, another one of the myths of EMS that um, you, you actually have to, first thing you got to do is cut the cord. No, you don't. You leave it alone. And the World Health Organization recommends that you wait three full minutes uh, if you're going to cut the cord at all. And there are many people out there who just leave the cord on and it's just, it's just okay. So there are very few things that are really kind of in the ALS realm here, but um, Many people may see it as if something goes wrong, I'll need further. But really what you need is very good BLS skill. Know how to manage a child when they come out, which is, again, very, very basic. Um, unless you start, unless you're getting to the uh, premature child who um, has underdeveloped lungs and they come out in cardiac arrest, well, then it's a shit show either way. Right? Well, right, yeah. <laughs> That's, and there, yeah. there's always outlier situations, of course. Um, but it, it, unpack the uh, the umbilical cord cutting uh, a little bit for me, because I'm I, I know it's been out there a little bit, um, but I also feel like it's uh, it's sort of underreported to a lot of people that would listen to the show. Yeah. So I actually put out a video on this, and I um, you know a few years ago we changed your protocols. So the bottom line is that if you have you know, as soon as the umbilical cord is exposed to, to oxygen, those arteries, and as soon as the baby is exposed to oxygen in general, those arteries and the, and, 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 the, um, and the veins in there, they end up just kind of clamping down, right? So um, it turns out that a child, the, uh, up to one-third of the blood volume is still sitting in the placenta. So you take this child out, and you clamp the cord, and now you have a huge amount of blood volume sitting in the placenta. So for years, people thought that if I let all that blood come in um, into the baby, then the child's going to have severe jaundice and kernicterus and all these other things. Not true, turns out. 
um, that um, if, especially if you have a child who comes out and is sick uh, or premature, you want them to have that blood volume, right? So you're you're basically cutting off the 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 life's the lifeblood, if you will, for that child. And so um, the main reason people clamp the umbilical cord so quickly in the um, in the delivery room is because people have been scammed into this cord blood um, freezing, right? So you pay fifteen hundred bucks, they take the the cord blood, and they say we're going to put it in a freezer, and just in case one day when you need it, uh, we'll say we'll have it for you. And so in order to get that blood, you have to have a nice engorged umbilical cord. And I was a medical student doing that for for a long time when I was on the OB rotation. Well, it, well, it, it, it turns out that. Uh, a, you probably don't have to save the cord blood anyway. There's probably some people on the on, on this call who'll be upset about me me saying that. Um, but at the end of the day, the child needs that blood volume, and so um, let the body take care of itself. There's no need to uh, touch the cord, and so we've we've put that into our protocols now that you don't have to address the cord at all. And what that does is it allows you to focus on drying the baby and you know kind of flicking their feet to try and get them to breathe and do the basics of, hey, there's a new baby born in the world rather than focusing on the cord. Right. And exactly. So one of the things that everyone on the show, um, we're all kind of television and movie people. Do you feel that like TV, movies and media have had an effect on that cutting the cord type of a uh, dynamic? Yes, absolutely. A hundred percent. Yeah. <laughs> yeah so I, I, think, I, I think it has to be People have to train on this. They have to change their protocols. And as soon as you alleviate the need to address the cord, my God, the actual child and the mother get the full attention that they need. Um, and if it's, if the child is um, hypovolemic or premature or what have you, all of a sudden you're actually giving the baby the blood supply that it needs uh, to actually survive. So I think it's a, it's a huge, huge thing to do in all EMS protocols. Right. And that, it's a, something that we've talked about a lot on the show is how much, uh, you know, television and media kind of skews medicine and all the things that we've, we've actually done a couple episodes on things they've done wrong. Um, yeah. and it's, it's just, there's so much of it. It's insane. Um, so let's switch up a little bit and we'll talk about pain management for pediatric patients. We talked earlier, um, about children being underdosed in the presence of seizures. Um, have you found that generally pediatric patients are underdosed writ large or is that just on seizure type patients? That's a great question. Um, I think that um, most kids are, you know, I think that the the highest risk is an error of omission. The kid needs something, but I'm just not going to do it. Um, and I think that once once people uh, attempt to give a dose, it turns out that fentanyl is the highest uh, risk of of uh, medication error of all the medications we carry. And why is that? Because the dose we're giving children is a is a fractional number, right? Um, the dose typically people have as like point as a um, 0.5 mics per kilo uh, for IV, and then all the way up to let's say two mics per kilo intranasal. But whatever number that comes up in a child, when you divide it by 50, which is a 50 mics per mL, you're always going to get a small number. And so many studies have shown that fentanyl is the, is 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 a big risk if you're going to give the drug. There happens to be a paper being uh, an abstract being presented. Uh, at NMSP in 2020, I was just told about where they actually one system looked at, um, you know, using our system of drug dosing, and that they found that with fentanyl there actually wasn't a significant um, error rate because guess what? We gave them the actual volume to administer. 
But I think it's a bigger error of not using the drug, Ed, rather than actually making the, the, the error. But we do know that the errors for fentanyl are pretty high. And something, well. I, something I do want to point out, you talk about a lot um, as far as administering volumes and not milligrams, uh, a lot about MLs and not MGs. And I think that's interesting. Just talk to me a little bit more about that uh, as far as how your system is concerned. Yeah. So in other words, if you're if, if you have our app open and you're in Denver uh, EMS and you have a two-year-old who um, has a deformed elbow, you're on the two-year-old. You look at fentanyl. It come. It's this was created customized right to your protocol. So it'll say for two-year-old, it'll say I'm just making up the number here because I don't know their protocol, but it'll say like 0.4 ml. Um, now it it has milligram dose kind of in there as well, but we don't highlight that. We highlight the volume. And then when you click, uh, I gave it, when you look at your EPCR, it'll say the microgram dose. It'll say 12 micrograms as an example, because the documentation has to come in micrograms or milligrams. Right. So, but, but for us as, as, as medics in the field, we actually have to give a volume. So we actually give you that volume right in front of you. So you're not doing any math when you're on the scene. Well, and that's why I think it's interesting. I think especially with the stress of a pediatric patient, it'll be easier. I, okay, I need five mLs of this drug, whatever it is, as opposed to having to calculate milligrams and all that kind of stuff. Um, so while we're talking about medications, what do you find? I'm going to ask you three different categories here. What do you find are the right medications, or at least in your opinion, for pain management for a child, for sedation, and for RSI uh, in general. Now, but before we get into it, there are a lot of places that don't allow their their medics to intubate uh, or to RSI pediatric patients. So I guess it's a it's a multi part question. I know, but do you have your medics RSI pediatric patients? And then let's get into the the right drugs for those things. Yeah, it's a great question. So um, remember, I have I have different agencies, and so. Um, my, my protocols are not consistent across all the agencies because it's all based on who my providers are and, and, and you know, what, what, what their skill set is. Sure. So in, in one of my agencies, we've moved from RSI for all. It doesn't matter what age you are, cradle to grave, from RSI to DSI. So um, with, with DSI, we, you know, the, the only difference just for the listeners is that with RSI, the R for rapid was how fast you give the drug, right? So you give... Uh, ketamine and rocuronium give give, and then you give a flush, and then you wait the you know 60 to 90 seconds to intubate. The problem there is that people are so focused on giving the drug quickly and then looking and then you know intubating that what what happened was the blood pressure because they didn't preoxygenate correctly. So with DSI, what we do is we still use uh, ketamine as the induction agent. We still use rocuronium as the paralytic, but we, we have a three-minute gap in between those two medications. So after the ketamine, you have to have a saturation of greater than 93% for at least three minutes, and we have a stopwatch. So it slows everything down, and during that three minutes, you make sure the blood pressure is good, and oftentimes, just the ketamine alone fixes the problem. And let's say it was an adult trauma patient. Well, there, there's no more trismus, and we can just bag this person to the hospital and we'll have to intubate them. Um, and then after the rocuronium is given, if it's given, then what happens is we don't have any hypoxic events, and we avoid the peri-intubation arrest. And many are probably familiar with Dr. Jeff Jarvis, who wrote the paper, uh, and Scott Weingart, who kind of uh, promulgated this theory years ago, that this really works and it saves people from dying. So yes, I do allow it, but 
um, in cardiac arrest situation, everybody gets an eye gel first. So we only kind of do the DSI in someone who, let's say, is a smoke inhalation, severe anaphylaxis, someone who's circling the drain is going to die, or like the adult CHF or if they need it. But for a car, adult or pediatric cardiac arrest, it's two big breaths. The eye gel gets dropped in right away, uh, and we only upgrade to a, a tube if necessary. So that's kind of the, the model that we have here. And have you moved into that for traumas as well, or are you still intubating traumas? No, it's the same thing. So it's, it's the same thing for trauma. So um, for, you know, many, many may have heard of the, of the new EPIC study that just got released regarding a traumatic brain injury uh, and intubation so that if you have any hypoxic event or any hypotensive event, um, you have a significant, significantly increased chance of harm um, of either of those two alone. And you have, I think the odds ratio is like 13 if you have both of them together. So traumatic brain injury um, and airway, I think, is a huge topic that people need to be discussing and avoidance of hypoxia and avoidance of hypotension and only intubate if you have to. So what we tell our folks is basically if you have a good airway, you're oxygenating, you have to have an end tidal. If you're, if you're ventilating well um, and there's no need to, uh, to take the airway, then don't do it. Because during that time, if the patient becomes hypotensive or hypoxic, then their odds of, um, of, 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 uh, you know, of not surviving goes way up. Right. And we've, we've talked about this on the show previously, too. But it seems like intubation generally is becoming less and less indicated in a lot of yeah. patient populations. Have you found that as well? Yeah, that's, that's very true. I mean, obviously, with, with CPAP, that you know, I think probably all of us use nowadays. But, um, you know, and I think, I think that this, this concept of, um, you know, DSI or maybe even DSA, uh, so, you, so just so the word intubation doesn't have to go in there, I think that um, there's, there's high-flow nasal cannula. There's a lot of different things now that are, are, are precluding the need for intubation. And so I think people need to be up to date on that rather than trying to just put a tube in everybody. I think that's a big mistake. Right. So as long as we're talking about drugs, uh, I'm going to throw a couple articles and numbers out here at you about ketamine. Um, and then I want your take on this. So 2008, in an emergency medical journal, this is Newton and Fitton, they had a 92-patient cohort. Uh, they gave 0.5 to 1 milligram per kilogram in a pediatric population. Um, almost all of them, 99% achieved sedation. And the quote is, there was no serious adverse effects associated with its use. They had a couple patients become agitated. Um, five were transient agitation. Seven received IV midazolam. And then uh, American Journal of Emergency Medicine 2016 said that 2 milligrams per kilogram of ketamine is safe for children. So the the question I have for you is that if we've known this drug is safe for more than a decade generally, why is there still a debate about using ketamine in pediatric patients? I can tell you that there ain't no debate here. Uh, <laughs> we, <laughs> we actually, we, we actually um, have ketamine everywhere in our protocol for adult and pediatric patients. So here, here's what we use it for. So we use it for pain. We use it for sedation. We use it for RSI. We use it for the severe asthmatic who's not getting better with the, you know, epi, benadryl, uh, sorry, epi, albuterol, cytomedrol, and so forth. And we also have it in there for seizure. And I just got finished uh, submitting an abstract. We have um, an abstract being submitted for NEMSP for adult and pediatric patients. We, we had 16 cases of refractory status epilepticus to 10 milligrams of Versed, still seizing after that. And our protocol is 100 milligrams IV. Or in, in a child, one per kilo IV of ketamine, or three per kilo IM. 
and we were successful in 15 out of 16 cases. That's 93.7% success rate. And so this will be the first ever uh, kind of publication, if you will, of uh, ketamine for use in pre-hospital seizures. There is one caveat that you have to understand with ketamine where people, I think, screw it up, is that it comes as several concentrations. It comes as the super concentrated 100 milligrams per ml, which most people use for excited delirium. It comes as 50 milligrams per ml, and then it comes as the 10 milligrams per ml. If you give ketamine um, the concentrated version to anyone, the, the, like for, let's say for RSI, the volume is going to be super small. And when you give ketamine fast, the risk is laryngospasm. And so many people, you know, when they have ketamine for pain in their, in their pediatric protocol, they're using the wrong concentration. They don't dilute it down. And then they end up, instead of giving the kid this ketamine slowly over 10 minutes for pain, they slam it in. Now the kid goes altered. They get to the ER. And now the kid had a broken leg, and now he can't talk. And then you get doctors screaming at you. So you really have to know how to deploy ketamine. I'm happy to share with you what we do. We just dilute it down to 0.5 milligrams per ml. And we have, let's say, 15 mLs, just making up a number for an age of a kid, 15 mLs over 10 minutes. We also use it intranasally for the, for the really young kids. So um, you have to know what you're doing with ketamine, but it's basically a 10-minute conversation, right to right protocol, and then, and then train on it. I think ketamine should be uh, in every toolbox, but you have to know how to use it correctly. Right. I, I remember a conversation I had with one of my medical directors a few years ago. It seems like we're finding there's more reasons to not to use ketamine than there are to not use ketamine anymore. Um, yeah. it, that seems to be kind of panning out. So one last thing real quick. Give me a quick like 30-second elevator pitch. How do you think we can improve EMS education for pediatric care? Well, I think I'll go back to where we started, where if we start to understand that um, nothing magical happens when you're 17 years and 364 days that today you're a pediatric patient and tomorrow when you're 18, you'll become an adult. I think that the biggest thing is, is to um, treat everyone mentally, kind of emotionally, treat them the same, have training out there that actually focuses on treating everybody the same. And then the second thing I would say uh, to your question is that video learning for pediatrics ain't going to cut it, okay? I think you have to be in a, in a room where uh, we actually give you, kind of sprinkle in some, some stress, what I call stress inoculation, where we have a nervous parent in the room while you're drawing up a medication, where we force you to talk to the mom and dad in a scenario where your team is doing CPR and you're, you're, you have to speak to the family. There is no other way of training in pediatrics than to do a great hands-on class and then we remove the dosing at the same time. And all of a sudden, you say, my God, this is the same exact thing as treating the adult. So I think, I think that you know, um, there's a wide open space, in my opinion, in pediatrics because it's been done so wrong for so many years. And we're just happy to be kind of at the, at the bleeding edge of, of making it right. Uh, I'm just happy to be in that position. And that's all great. I think that's really important, too, to get out to our providers. So, Dr. Peter Antsiavi, thank you so much for talking to me. I appreciate it. Um, yeah, thank you for your time. Thanks, Ed. I really appreciate you having me on. Thanks again.
Thanks again to Dr. Peter Antibi for talking to me today. Lots of interesting things to talk about. Um, we do debate ketamine a lot more than we probably should, given the data that's out there. Um, also, a lot of interesting innovations that he's doing down there in Florida. Lots of good stuff that we talked about today. We want to know what you guys think about this. How are you treating your pediatric patients? Let us know at overrunproductions at uh, gmail.com. Also, Instagram and Facebook, Overrun Productions, and Twitter at Overrun EMS. For The Overrun, my name is Ed Bowder. Thank you so much for listening. We'll talk to you next time.